if you look at the top five DOD contractors, you know, back in the day, it was always, it's like McDonnell Douglas or Boeing, you know, it's aircraft manufacturers or Raytheon, you know, weapons manufacturers, you know, have always been the biggest DOD contract. You look at the pharmaceutical industry, while huge, by comparison to like Boeing, Donald Douglas or whatever, we're pretty small potatoes in the world of government contract. It's much harder to sell poison to the populace on its own merit. It's a lot easier when you can force it into them and the U.S. government buys all of it. And that's what happened to with these gene therapy products. They were government contracts, open-ended, complete liability, immunity. I mean, you know, everybody's kind of covered this in the in public. It turned Pfizer from, you know, like vaulted them all the way to near the top. They're not one of the top DOD contractors. And once that happens, it's basically you're getting your immune system, you know, on a license agreement. It's like those software license agreements, booster every six months. It's your immune system on a license agreement that the DOD has with Pfizer. Welcome to After Hours with Dr. Sigaloff. On this podcast, you will be encouraged to question everything. And to have the courage to stand for the truth. And now, to your host, Dr. Sigaloff. Thank you for joining me again. I first want to thank all my Patreon supporters. We have Too Tough, who gives $30 a month. We have an anonymous family donor giving $20.20 a month. We have the Plandemic Reprimando at $17.76 a month with Ty, Charles, Tinfoil, Stanley, Dr. Anna, Frank, Brian, Shell, and Brantley. At $10, we have Kevin and Pat and Bev. The Refined Not Burned at $5 a month with Linda, Emmy, Joe, PJ, Rebecca, Marcus, Elizabeth, Dawn, Ken, Rick, Mary, and Amanda. Addison Mulder is giving $3 a month and Frank is giving $1.50. And Encourage is Contagious at $1 a month with Jay, Spesnasty, Darrell, Susan, BB King, and Caleb. I also want to remind everybody to go check out mycleanbeef.com slash after hours. That's mycleanbeef.com slash after hours, where you can get some of the best beef that I've ever tasted and probably the best beef you've ever tasted as well. Now, next we have a very special guest. Dale Saran is an attorney. He's, a, he's an attorney and he's, he's old school. He, he was the one in Dover's Rumsfeld that won against the Secretary of Defense back in 2004. Dale, it's great to have you on today. Thanks, Sam. Great to be on. How are you? Doing great. And I'm encouraged to know that there is someone that did fight back when when I was still in, in college. There was someone fighting. And now that same man is still here fighting and leading the charge. Tell us what's going on and, and what you're doing now. Well, it's, um, you know, it's uh, interesting. It's like deja vu all over again, to quote Yogi Berra. Hold on, i got a cat yelling at me. Hey, shut up. Um, but uh, my cat's going nuts. Um the um yeah the the frustrating thing i guess would be you know the first part um when i got started with this uh you know todd calendar a gentleman you you know an attorney you and i both know well reached out to me um and i was i was doing completely other things you know um and um todd reached out to me and had heard of me from the dovey rumsfeld suits and i'll just add to it i was there i was a part of it for sure did some work on it but the the lead counsel for that was a gentleman named lou michaels who some who some folks may know he's still around and doing some other lawsuits related to, to his litigation specialties but um um todd reached out to me and uh 
you know, kind of roped me in and it was frustrating because we couldn't get this stopped. I think, you know, you were, you were there. I'm not telling anything you don't know, but some of your listeners might not. You were part of that original crew, really. And we were trying to, to stop this whole thing from happening, you know, and then, and it was frustrating, um, to, to see that ball get rolling and know, you know, that there was, once it got going, it was going to be hard to stop. So we, we fought for, you know, injunctive relief. We've still got one case going there uh, for declaratory relief, which is, basically just a declaration from a federal court that, hey, these are all the laws they violated. And so that case is still alive. That's in Texas. But um, I think Congress did the DOD a favor in uh, rescinding the mandate when they did so. It kind of let the DOD off the hook in a lot of the litigation. Uh, some of those cases are still out there. But uh, what it meant for uh, myself, for me, Brandon Johnson and Andy Meyer, who who have all had our own individual lawsuits as well as larger class action lawsuits in this in this whole fight against the military vaccine mandates. And um, uh, once the rescind happened, we all thought that that opened the door immediately to um, probably that the injunctive relief was going to be in the past now and um, would be mooted and that now we needed to get, um, you know, correction. And that meant, you know, uh, getting all the folks who'd been wrongfully kicked out, you know, it, it was not a legal order. It was an illegal order. Um, that was clear from the beginning. And so now we had to start working on getting relief for people. And so we filed three uh, lawsuits in the Court of Federal Claims, which is a specialized court, kind of a weird court, but um, a specialized court, federal court that hears back military back pay claims. It has for since just after the uh, uh, Mexican-American War, that's what it was set up for, was for veterans. Fundamentally, it's a veterans court. And um, we filed there, and we've got three cl class actions ongoing. And that's really uh, kind of, you know, been in the news a little bit lately since the Army, as you know, is, is dying on recruiting numbers. What are the names of those cases? So um, let's check the big board here behind me. Um, that is uh, Botello across the top there. You see the three. Those are the three names of the lawsuits. Harkins is named for uh, the lead plaintiff, Chris Harkins, who was uh, about six months for reti from retiring. Sorry, somebody's being insistent. The, um, that's named for uh, uh, Chris Harkins, who's a coastie who, um, you believe this guy? Unbelievable. This is what happens when you have a bunch of these things. Um, that's named for Chris Harkins, who's a coastie who was six months from retirement, six months from his 20 when they kicked him out. And then um, we've got Batello, which is named for uh, uh, Jeremiah Batello, who is a uh, uh, Arizona um, National Guard chaplain. And then um, and he was also part of some other lawsuits. And then the final lawsuit is uh, named for Nick Basson. So we have Basson, Batello, and Harkins. And Basson is for the uh, folks who got straight up kicked out. That's for the active duty folks who who got um, thrown off of active duty. So the reason we've got three different lawsuits is because that's just the nature of how the DOD budgeting and and how the court of claims works, how you can basically state a claim. So we had to we had to kind of split them up into three different suits because of legal authorities for each of them. And how big are the plaintiff lists in each one of these? Because if I'm not mistaken, one of these is enormous, isn't it? Or are they yeah, all enormous? So we don't have good numbers. You know, the DOD is never entirely forthcoming. I mean, you know how it goes. Trying to get an answer out of them, a straight answer, um, is about impossible. We picked the numbers from uh, some different congressional hearings. Um, the uh, 
there's a post article or something where the DOD admitted to, I think in their own press release, they said that they canned 69,000 National Guardsmen. And then, yeah, 69,000 at least. And then there's, there's some other articles that put the number at like, there's another one where they're like, yeah, we lost like 85,000 from the army or something. So you can't, it's like, well, wait a minute. Is that just from the army or like, what are we talking about here? So it's tough to get a, a straight set, but I would say that roughly speaking, the, the Basson case for those active duty who were discharged, we get a pretty good sense that the number of active duty discharged was probably a little less than 10,000, probably somewhere in the range of 9,000 ish. Um, and then the Botello folks, the national guardsmen who were either um, dropped or, you know, placed involuntarily into the, into a non-drilling status or whatever, that, that number, just basically the people they cut funding for, that number is probably between 70, I don't know, 70, 80,000 ish. Again, you know, that, that number is even tougher to, uh, get, get an answer to. And then the Coasties, um, you know, that lawsuit, I know there were about, um, Oh, we saw some number of how many people total filed for RIFRA claims and all that. And we know everybody there that that whole process was a sham. So everybody got denied. But, um, you know, that's another lawsuit that's likely to be a few thousand anyway. So I think roughly all of them together are probably comfortably in the range of, of 100,000 servicemen and women who got who got either you know, involuntarily discharged, uh, dropped to the ready reserves, or just they cut their funding and were like, that's it. We, you know, we cut ties with you. It's pretty, pretty amazing. I, we think it's the largest post-Cold War or post-World War II drawdown. Like where, where there, what, where it wasn't a, a planned exit, exodus of people where there was something like this, where it was just one day there were this many people and the next day there were that many gone. You know, I mean, it was, it's a huge number. Huge and when you people. when you look at it that way, you're like, wow, it, you know, it, it wasn't, you know, sold as a drawdown, but it essentially was an enormous drawdown. I mean, it's just mind blowing. And yeah, with I don't know no, if you well congressional approval, you know, which is the interesting part of it. It was just the DOD did it on its own. And I don't know if if any of your numbers are including people who were, because uh, I know for a fact, I, I've been told independently by two different uh, service members that here at Fort Huachuca, in fact, they they kick people out as refusal to train because there's a schoolhouse here. And the reason they refused to train, they didn't actually refuse to train. They weren't allowed into the oh, schoolhouse because they didn't get the yeah. shot. And so they were kicked out as a refusal to train. I don't know if there's yeah. a place for those people anywhere in your your lawsuits. Yeah, I mean, there is in my head, and, and I've often said, you know, when when I've been asked about this publicly, uh, I've tried to make clear that I don't believe the DOD's numbers for an instant. Like, <laughs> it's a vast undercounting of the real effects of what happened, of the policy, because, I mean, I, I just had a call this morning with a, a possible, you know, client who heard about this, and he said, well, I don't know if I really qualify because... I just, when my ETS came up, I had, I was planning on re-enlisting, but they were like, well, you can't unless you're willing to get the vax, you know, because you're non-deployable. I mean, they had this, this sort of self-referential -ref circle where they define things a certain way and then you didn't meet the definition and it meant you were, like you said, you're like a failure to train or, you know, there were a lot of those. So the real numbers of, of people who left, I would estimate are probably... 
on I'll say double. I think the total number is probably double. So if, if there were 100,000 that we can point to and say, these were people who were kicked out, who, who went unwillingly, you know, who said, I don't want to go. And then, you know, were involuntarily gone. The voluntary numbers, and by voluntary, I'm, I am using my quotey fingers here in, intentionally because those are people who were coerced out. They, they were given an ultimatum fundamentally, and they were like, no, nah, okay, I'm out. And I'll bet those numbers of people who didn't re-enlist or otherwise were are retirement eligible or just allowed their discharges to expire, you know, who otherwise would have stayed, I'll bet that number's, I'll bet it's another 100,000. No, nobody will, the DOD will never admit that. And they can't for legal reasons and, and other reasons. Um, but I guarantee you that that number is, is uh, at least another half and, and maybe as high as double. It wouldn't surprise me at all. Well, I, I fall into that category. I was going to stay in the reserves until retirement. And right. and the hardships that they put me through just made it too impossible for me to stay. And, and the crazy part yeah. is I had a letter also signed by eight congressmen asking if I could get out two months early. And instead of approving that, the Secretary of Defense Warmuth said, no, you are going to stay until the end of your, you know, your, yeah, your the contract. Retention. I, you know, I have experience that maybe dispositionally suited me to this and, and not just the anthrax experience, but that arose out of, you know, I was a, I was a big green machine guy. You know, I joined, uh, I was, I'm, I'm a little ashamed to admit this, but I'll say it anyway. You know, I was part of the Top Gun generation. So I was a junior in high school when Top Gun came out in 1986. And so I ran, like we all did, you know, like, woo, kissing Kelly McGillis. Yes. You know, and, and we're going to get a, we thought we we're going to get issued a motorcycle and all that stuff, you know. And, and so I thought I was a, you know, a lifer. So I, I came in as part of that generation and I was a pilot and then, you know, wound up being a lawyer, but I still had in my head, I still had the idea, all the ideas that most of the people do about when you join. You know, I thought about what I thought the institution was. And um, then I became a, uh, I interned as a prosecutor while I was at law school and I, and that was kind of cool. And then at Camp Lejeune, and then I wound up in Okinawa, Japan. And my first assignment was actually as a criminal defense attorney. And that was a real eye opener because you suddenly find yourself defending, you know, in many cases, people, the, the 1% or 5% or whatever you want to call them, you know, knuckleheads largely. But, you know, there's a, in the military who get themselves in trouble. But, you know, there's a, a big chunk of those folks who are, you know, otherwise decent folks who find themselves in, in tough circumstances. But it, it wasn't long until I realized just how, just how, uh, bad and how much pressure and, and what kinds of forces the military can bring to bear on people it doesn't like, even if they're innocent. And that was a real eye opener. That made me, that made me look at everything a lot differently. You know, I can tell you some funny stories from when I was a pilot. Like I was the duty officer one night and a guy, another captain got called, went to the barracks and he smelled weed and he kicked in someone's door and you know, caught them, you know, red-handed. Oh my God. You know, and, and I kind of laugh about it now. They were smoking weed in the barracks. I laugh, I can laugh about it now, but at the time, like as a lawyer, I can think about it and be like, yeah, that was as unlawful a search as it's possible to be. Do, you know, no warrant, nothing booted the door open, you know, to heck with your constitution. And it, it was kind of funny as a, you know, as a, an officer, as a combat arms officer, but you know, when you're on the other side of it as, a, as an attorney, and people start getting thrown in jail over things like failure to take a, a vaccine that's you know not licensed. 
you know, you start to appreciate, maybe you look at things a little bit differently, but that was, that was the big eye opener. And I think a lot of the folks that are right now with this happening, you know, like yourself, many have found out, yeah, it, it, this is, um, when the, when the military turns, uh, vaccines into, you know, your health decisions into loyalty tests, it's, it's a problem. It's a real problem, you know, for the whole I think it's a great way to put and that. For, and for America too. Because it became a loyalty test over health because it's not even a vaccine. It's a gene therapy. And it's like, okay, you know, it's not it's not as bad as bend the knee. It's it's so much worse that bend the knee and your life may never be the same. Yep. Yep. It's uh, it's unfortunate. And I I feel for a lot of folks who, um, you know, dispositionally feel called to serve in the military or come from a proud tradition of that. But what's happening right now with the recruiting woes and the and the numbers you know uh, that the military wants and needs to bring back in and and you see for what to do you know what what great battle would you be called to partake in and potentially risk your life for you know what defense of the nation what constitutional threat and you got to start scratching your head and wondering you know so yeah and and i feel awful for the people that took it because they, they were coerced. I mean, this was an, an enormous psychological operation against not just the military, but I would say a large part of the military, but against the doctors. And there's doctors that still recommend this today. And there's patients that are terrified to not get the next shot. I mean, I've, I've seen someone that had seven shots. It's insane. And they're terrified to not get the next one because they've been, the PSYOP worked. It did exactly what it's supposed to do. Yeah, fear, you know, the whole point of any, you know, almost all psychological operations at some level is they're, you know, they're intended to manipulate emotions and, and the more powerful the emotion, the better results you can get, so to speak, from the from the perspective of the, the person per perpetrating the PSYOP. And, and we've got folks in this lawsuit, by the way, you know, it's interesting to represent military people because a good number of them recognized all of what went on. I mean, the Operation Warp Speed you know, the rollout of the vaccine had had a concomitant uh, psychological operation component that went with it. It, it was information warfare went alongside the, the need to, you know, make the vaccine. And, and we're still finding out pieces of that from various media sources like you know, Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger and others, you know, continue to the Twitter files, all of that continue to um, show that this this was a coordinated psychological operation against the American public by its own government. And I don't know if you ever had the opportunity or the uh, were coerced into watching the video that they made the especially the army, they made the army watch this video of propaganda. And if you're interested in listening to it, go back to my very first episode is before I was doing video. Uh, and I, I play a bit of it and I pause it and I critique it. And it's, it is the worst propaganda I've ever seen. It's just so blatantly, you know, scripted. It's, it's horrendous. It's awful. And with even just not even a scientific mind or a medical mind, you can easily blow holes through all of it. Yeah. It's, you know, I used to, I used to think that the, when I was a kid, the idea of the big lie, you know, telling the big lie and just telling it hard. I, I always thought that that was, you know, the, the kind of, Joseph Goebbels notion of, you know, the Nazi model of propaganda. I always thought that was crazy because, you know, when you're a kid, like my world consisted of my parents and what I had seen, what I had learned quickly was that 
you almost always got caught lying and the big lie would eventually lead to the big ass whipping. And so I, I couldn't <laughs> ever believe that you could get away with it just by sheer, like that was never going to work on my dad, you know, or my mom. <laughs> but I will say that as you get older, you do start to realize there is a certain power in it and you can see it particularly publicly. Like, you know, I mean, look at Clinton shaking his finger at the American public. You know, I did not have sexual relations, you know, and a lot of people just absolutely bought that. You know, absolutely bought that. Although to anyone who kind of, you know, was a little bit distanced from it, if it wasn't their guy, you know, it, it's the same thing with, you know, athletes on the, when they pop positive for steroids or whatever, you know, when it's your team, the guy's got a great justification or you believe him, you know, when it's somebody else's team, you're like, the guy's a lying cheat, you know, take all their awards. And so it's, I think we, the biggest part of being of uh, arming yourself against it is to kind of be able to step away from your own your own propaganda you know the stories you tell yourself and and then you can kind of hear it in the other team's context and you go oh wow you know it was um yeah there are a lot of holes in it it's not particularly good it's ham-handed but i you know i think malone's talked about this many other people you know have and i've seen it in other contexts but the neuro-linguistic programming i mean you just beat people over the head and say the same thing over and over again just repeat it and uh Boy, you can get a big chunk of the people well, and, who just go along. You know, we're, we're kind of conditioned heard, this from, you know? from childhood, you know, because you, you mentioned the big lie. And the first thing that popped in my head was Santa Claus. And if you have kids listening to this, you know, and you want them to believe in Santa Claus, turn it off right now. Uh, but like we don't teach our kids that Santa Claus is, is real because, yeah, he's, he's a fun imaginary thing. And we tell them, look, other kids need to figure out if it's if it if they believe him or not. Don't don't you burst that bubble. Right. But it's mommy and daddy who buy these things and bring them to you because we don't want when they get older to be like, right. y'all been lying to us with this enormous lie right. that even NORAD's involved with saying they're, they're tracking Santa flying across the United States. It's right. like, what no, else? we're not going to be a part of that. Right. right. Yeah. And, and, and what else? I mean, you, it, you really do. You do kind of a disservice where you create this alternate reality. You know, with the expectation that eventually they're going to have to confront the real thing. I mean, why is that? You know, it's a it's been a lesson for everybody. You know, it's been tough because, I mean, I have people in my family even who knew, you know, who knew I wrote a book about my experience with the anthrax vaccine, who know, you know, knew me when I was litigating all this stuff. And yet um, when the vaccine came down, it was, you know, it was as if all the things that I had talked to them about just evaporated, you know. And so it made it that, you know, they're like. <laughs> They would ask me, so, you know, like, well, what are you going to do? You know, I'm like, what do you think I'm going to do? You know, I mean, come on, you know, you, who are you talking to here? And so uh, it, it's amazing to me that even people I thought who I thought by virtue of their closeness to me would, would have some immunity to this kind of uh, the this whole psyop over the these gene therapies. Like you said, not even vaccines. I mean, that was the thing that struck me about them right up front was like, I, you know, they're, the, the filings that the companies that made them in their declarations to the Security Exchange Commission, they say right on there that these are gene therapy products, Moderna's filings, Pfizer's filings, they had always classified them as gene therapies. But then they said that um, uh, for purposes of U.S., they would call, they would be, you know, the FDA was going to treat them as vaccines. And that right there was part of the psyop. I mean, I read from for somebody like me who has kind of a legal background in this this whole vaccine regime. You know, the one thing you could at least say about the anthrax vaccine, 
was it was an actual vaccine. It was a real vaccine. You know, they actually derived that from, you know, like the thing itself. And um, this, it was clear to me right away when they started calling these vaccines that that was, that was an intentional, they were relying upon the that word and all of the connotations that go with it and and this sense that people have are oh vaccine equal good vaccine prevent bad you know and um that that was right out of the gate that that was a conscious choice to call these things vaccines when they don't even meet the dod's own definition for a vaccine um in the in the dod instruction 6205.02 for all you folks keeping track at home and want to make sure dale's still on his game i believe that's the I believe that's where the, the citation is to uh, the DOD definition of vaccine. And I, I've I been reading be this double check. Uh, this phrase. Uh, it was it was it was from Frag 05, and it was in the paragraph. I can't remember the name of the paragraph right now. Um, and I read this for a year before it dawned on me what it was actually saying because I changed the words in my head. In my head, I read, you know, the commanders must ensure that there are FDA approved vaccines on hand to provide for blah 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 for their service members, and that's not what it said. What it actually said is ensure there's enough DOD approved vaccine. Oh, wow. I, I was reading that for I, about a year I before I realized I that, that says either. DOD approved vaccine. That does not say FDA. And if you need that, I can send that to you. It's in. Wow. It, it, no, I'm sure I have it. You know, I'm sure I've read it like you have probably a dozen times and blown right past that paragraph, you know, but that that would be perfectly revealing of what was going on. You know, there was a lot of that. I mean, a lot of the paperwork I knew, you know, I got things early on because I was the anti-vax guy and I, I got known for that in the Marine Corps and, you know, between all the stuff I did in 99 <laughs> and then all the way through Dovey Rumsfeld. So a lot of people knew me as the anti-vax guy, which is kind of funny because <laughs> my shot record looks probably like most people in the DOD. You know, I look like the human impression. I think I got a copy around here somewhere. Um, uh, but, you know, I got all, all, all kinds of stupid stuff. And now, that you know, over my dead body, will I let anyone inject me with anything? I mean, I just... You, you know, and people, I laugh now, you know, the whole term anti-vaxxer, like, hey, man, you turned me into one. I didn't start this way, you know. Um, but uh, it it was something that uh, it struck me immediately that, you know, the whole do do they did there with the FDA and then having a DOD official approve. I mean, that's at the heart of our case. You know, it always has been having DOD officials making uh, clinical judgments about the interchangeability of products is is just uh that's a strange new world you know it sure is and what you're referencing is um what was the name of that lady Tatter yeah adderam adderam uh assistant secretary of defense uh for health affairs or under secretary of defense or something like that you know who who uh did the famous interchangeability memos and did it for both spike vax and for the uh, BNT-162, the, the Pfizer version, but substituted an unlicensed product in for a licensed one, said that that's A-OK, -okay, as if she had any authority to do so. She does not, you know, never has. Nobody in the DOD has that authority. But um, that's a that's a pretty big uh, tip-off as to how, how far afield we are now. The DOD officials now, and the DOD itself, 
believes that it can uh, it can make determinations about vaccines and whether they're licensed or not, you know, or not even vaccine biologic products. Let's call them what they are, you know, about gene biologics. Yeah. Well, and what's interesting is that day that that memo came out, I had a conversation with my boss, a lieutenant colonel and a doctor. And I said, look, they're not the same thing. You know, go look at the vial. Does it say, um, you know, EUA on it or not? And he was about to go look at it. And then he got the email like 10 minutes later with that Terry Adderham memo that says uh, that they're interchangeable. And so he never went and looked. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was at the heart of the case from the beginning. And it's been uh, maybe one of the biggest frustrations is that you, no one has looked at the, You can't get a single judge to look at that issue. We haven't yet been able to get um, a judge to rule on the simple issue of whether DOD officials can make interchangeability determinations for FDA-regulated products. And the answer to that, of course, is, an, is a resounding no, or, or our entire constitutional scheme is meaningless. But we're finding out that maybe, maybe that's closer to the truth than not, you know, unfortunately. But hopefully, I mean, go ahead. Well, I was going to say that I'm sure you had a chance, but probably have forgotten it already. The affidavit that I wrote for uh, Todd Callender in uh, Robert V. Austin and how their incomplete safety data sheets make it illegal for the DOD to expose anybody to these products. Right. And and of course, then what came out, you know, I, I think it's really interesting, Sam. I mean, again, you and I go back and have some history here on this, but um <laughs> You know, we were able early on to uh, to get some some of those vials tested, and now there's all this stuff coming out about adulterated product, and you know, there's SV40, the simian virus 40 in there, and a lot of other stuff, plasmid, you know, DNA plasmid, all this stuff that turns out to be in these vials that would make them unquestionably adulterated products under the FDA regulations, and. Now it's big news, but I'm like, I'm pretty sure you and I filed something about that pretty early on, in the, like <laughs> two years ago. Yeah. You know? And, and you know, I make this very clear and abundant that I, I abundantly clear that I think that the mRNA or the DNA capsids are all that. I think that's half or less of the problem. I think the majority of the problem, or at least half of the problem, equal, is the lipid nanoparticle that's in it because it's not fit for human yeah. use It's for research use only they don't even let them inject them into animals yep yep it's uh yeah i i wish i could say anything you know that i was uh, i'm surprised by any of it but i i wrote a book specifically because i wasn't surprised about it you know in, in anticipation i published it in 2020 because i i mean you can see this coming a mile away though in there were other people like uh, the folks at Children's Health Defense, um, Dr. Merrill Nass. She was the one who prescribed uh, ivermectin to, I think, M Robert Malone. And she got her uh, the main board of uh, medicine, went after her license. And, and I've known Merrill since the anthrax days. And, um, you know, Merrill's a good lady and a good doctor. But we knew, and those of us who kind of been involved with Dovey Rumsfeld, you know, it was almost like when this all started with covid we all, as soon as they said, yeah, we're going to, we're going to get a vaccine. We were like, oh no. And we were all talking to each other. The writing was on the wall. You know, if you look at the top five contractors, uh, DOD contractors, you know, back in the day, 
it was always, it's like McDonnell Douglas or Boeing, you know, it's aircraft manufacturers or Raytheon, you know, weapons manufacturers, you know, have always been the biggest DOD contractors, huge numbers. I mean, they, they get, you know, billions and billions of dollars. And, um, uh, you look at the pharmaceutical industry while huge by comparison to like Boeing or McDonnell Douglas or whatever, we're pretty small potatoes in the world of government contracting, you know? It's much harder to um, sell poison to the populace um, on its own merit. It's a lot easier when you can force it into them and the U.S. government buys all of it. And that's what happened to, with these, uh, that, you know, these gene therapy products. They were, you know, government contracts, uh, open-ended, complete liability, immunity. I mean, you know, everybody's kind of covered this in the in public. I, I don't know how how much you, you almost can never cover it enough. But I mean, these things were, it turned Pfizer from, you know, like vaulted them all the way to near the top. They're not one of the top DOD contractors. And once that happens, it's basically, you're getting your immune system on a, um, you know, on a license agreement. It's like those software license agreements, you know, this booster every six months, it's, it's your immune system on a, on a, on a license agreement that the DOD has with Pfizer. It's just no good way that can, that can go on. You know, I don't think for, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I, I'll just, I, you know, it's, it's this, it's, you know, I was talking about Merrill Nass and, and some of us from the anthrax days. And I'll, I'll just say that back then the pharmaceutical companies, well, while big, you know, the U S pharmaceutical industry is huge, but individually they, they weren't, anything compared to the likes of Raytheon or, or McDonnell Douglas or any of those big companies, DOD contractors. But now we've turned pharmaceutical companies into DOD contractors. They've got their hand in that fat DOD budget now, and they'll never let it go. And so your immune system is now on a license agreement with the Department of Defense. You know that the bio warfare is now the excuse that the DOD always needed to, and that sigh up on the American public was to convince everyone to treat their closest friends and neighbors like disease vectors. Um, and uh, um, now you're going to get your immune system just like your software. Every six months, you need to get it updated, you know, forever, eternally. So, not me. Well, of course, you know, it, it has been for a long time. I mean, it, it, the excuse that Fort Detrick has had has always been that, well, you know, this is purely for defensive purposes. And yet it was it was clear. I'll tell you something about the anthrax letter attacks. It was clear to anybody who knew anything about anthrax, the, the bioweapon at the time, that there were only two labs in the world who were capable of making uh, aerosolized um that powdery form of anthrax. The only two labs in the world that had that capability, it's an extremely difficult, uh, cumbersome process. And anthrax molecules are clumpy by nature. And the only two labs that had the capability were one in Russia and one in the US at Fort Detrick. Those were the only two places the anthrax letters could have come from. And so, it, I mean, it was clear the day that the anthrax letters happened that it was either the Russians or it was us. You know, it either came from our lab or theirs. It was by the strain of it, it was clear very quickly that it was a U.S. strain, that it was our own. So, you know, the, the justification is always, oh, we're going to, you know, we're just using it for defensive purposes in case some bad actors 
do this, but the reality is that it's we're we're the bad actors. <laughs> if we weren't doing this, nobody else has the capability to be doing it. It's our own people. Okay. After a glitch, we didn't record, so uh, we're gonna hit record now. And <laughs> oh man, that was a great conversation too. So the question was, how do we switch the? Oh, and you said so much in between there. I'm so sorry. Um, no, no, that's how, how do we um, change these from civil actions to, to legal actions to get criminal prosecutions of these people that, that violated human rights, violated the Constitution, you know, aided and embedded the enemy? Um, because if you believe these are bioweapons like I do, then, then these were created by an enemy to get into the U.S. troops to destroy our military, which is proven by DMED, the Defense Military Epidemiologic Database, that our United States troops have been destroyed by this thing and they've even changed the database so i mean how do we get criminal prosecution of people who are treasonous how do we get treason yeah. you know charges it's a, pressed it's such a difficult um such a difficult question i i just gentleman the gentleman i referenced earlier who called me up he he, he had that same question you know what he wasn't sure where he fit in the lawsuit and i've had more people ask me that question maybe than any other um what when does the criminal accountability start you know and i always i try and you know i'm not going to try and duck it like i do with them i'll i'll be honest with you i owe you at least that you know we're, we're friends so i'll give you the the real answer is um you know i think that um i look at politics now like the way i look at the red sox versus the yankees um and I used to be really involved in that as a Red Sox fan, but I'm kind of moved on beyond baseball now. But um, the thing is that I, it looks to me like what we have right now is Team Blue uh, has decided that it's going to be, they're going to use friendly jurisdictions, the law in, in Team Blue favorable jurisdictions to go after their enemies, their political enemies, i.e. witness what's going on with former President Trump. And so if Team Red wants to, you know, remain viable, I think that they're they're going to have to um, consider, you know, the, the same. I don't think any I don't think any federal entity is going to do anything. I, I would not count on the feds to investigate themselves or there's not going to be any kind of accountability for the federal government. I think that ultimately the way I see this all going is that um, if there's going to be any, it'll have to be in in. Um, you know, Team Red jurisdictions, the ones that are serious. Um, and, you know, supposedly Florida impaneled a grand jury. That was quite a while ago, I think over a year ago. I haven't heard anything since, you know, we had talked about sending myself and, and Brandon and Andy, we talked about sending them some stuff. You know, I don't know if, if that's going to happen, but I mean, at some point, uh, you know, we're court is a substitute uh, civil suits and and criminal suits are a substitute for vigilante justice. We use the courts so that we don't, so people aren't, you know, swinging their the people that get them angry. Uh, they're not swinging them at the end of ropes and trees. I mean, that's that's why we have the court system, so we don't have that. At at some point, if the court system, if the people believe that the court system is no longer a vi viable option, they'll go back to the the other one. And so, um, I think Team Red needs to. Yeah, I mean, I think Team Red needs to keep that in mind, you know, has to, it, it, so that there's got to be, you have to have that outlet for people to get justice, or it's just a simmering burn that never goes away. 
Yeah, and if we get that here in the streets of America, I mean, I would imagine we're not like the founders of this country, and we'll be more like the French Revolution, where they just start lopping everyone's yeah. heads off. Yeah, it could be. I, you know, I'm. I was not a. I've never been a collapsitarian, but I'll tell you, I was at an event, Sam, where where there were a lot of very successful people, wealthy people, um, and uh, very smart people, very very intelligent people from all vastly different walks of life. And it was a science conference, in fact. And, uh, but in talking, I was amazed in talking to people about this and a lot of things going on in the country, how many of the people that I knew, how many of the conversations I heard were people talking about heading for the hills, man. I mean, everybody <laughs> talking about, it sounded like everybody there was a prepper. You know, it was amazing. I was at a very, I was in a very liberal place. I was in California wow. and in, in an uber liberal place in California. There were people there, very successful, intelligent, wealthy people from all over. And the conversation always seemed to come back to people. I could hear people talking about, well, you know, or, you know, getting some raised garden beds to grow our own vegetables. And, you know, everybody's talking about, um, you know, preparing for what feels sort of like an inevitable um, retrenchment, you know, I, I think that I have the sense, I don't know about anybody else that I, you know, the federal government can't keep spending and printing money like it's crazy. And it just, it all feels like it can't go on. You know? Yeah. And what's interesting is, you know, we're, I've seen numbers that related things to, let's say the depression and, and the numbers are so much worse now, but it seems right. like we're not feeling it because everyone's living on credit. Like what's going to happen when these when the credit debt comes and, and knocks and everything collapses from that. Yep. It's worse than the depression now, mon monetarily wise. Yeah, it can't, it can't continue. But people don't feel it because they can still buy food. Well, Dale, we're, we're hitting a hard time. I know your time is, is very uh, um, critical and I don't want to take more time than, than you've allotted me. I thank you so much for coming on. Where can people get your book? Where can people sign up for your lawsuit if you're still taking plaintiffs? Testing test. Okay. Okay. Yes, cannot. Sorry, we just had a crash again. Um, I want to be respectful of your time because we're coming up on the end of the hour. Uh, where can people get your book? Where can they join your? Any, any other? Any where other... can they join your lawsuit? Oh, sure. I'll tell you what I'm doing now. Yeah, the the lawsuits um, go to militarybackpay.com. Uh, we've got uh, the websites up. We put updates up there. You know, it's where the, the info is. So militarybackpay.com. And then um, I'm, I'm writing on Substack under my uh, my pseudonym, The Abject Lesson, and I write there and, and people can find my kind of thoughts and ramblings there. And the book's on Amazon under my name, Kindle and, and uh, in hard copy. And if people reach out, I'm happy to uh, send you a signed copy. I, I get those occasional requests, which is always flattering and nice. But um, yeah, that's... Uh, that's where that's where we are in the world, bud. Well, thank you so much for your fight. Thank you for everything that, that you've been doing. I know it's um, it's not a big shop. I believe it's you and, and some family members, and, and you've been pouring a lot into this for a long time. So I, I definitely am very appreciative of that. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a calling. My daughter's a, a paralegal. You know, she's got a year of law school under her belt, and I've got um, we've got Tom and and uh, others out there help us and. But uh, yeah, it's kind of a, it's a labor of love. It's one of those things that, you know, just like you, man, you know, you kind of find yourself, you just know you found the issue that it, it grabs you and you can't let go of it. And so uh, I ran away from it for a long time and then 
The good Lord dragged me back kicking and screaming, but this is where I seem to do my best work, so that's what I'm doing. Well, thank you for your, your bravery, for your fight, for your tenacity, and God bless you in your endeavors, and if there's any way I can help you, please let me know. I will, you know, we'll, we talk, bud. We'll, we'll be in touch again. Yes, sir. God bless. Thanks, Sam. Out. Just a reminder for everyone out there, duty uniform of the day, the full armor of God. Let's all make courage more contagious than fear. Doesn't dinner sound great as it's cooking? This dinner is from Riverbend Ranch, which always provides prime or high choice, has never been given hormones, never been given antibiotics, never been given mRNA vaccines. It's raised in the USA. It's processed in the USA. In fact, it's fully vertically integrated, which means that they own the cow that gives birth to the calf. It's raised on their fields and then taken to their butcher and then shipped to you. And if we compare what we can buy from Riverbend Ranch to four other major state companies that sell bundles that have ribeyes and other meat in it, it can be as much as $184 to $59 less expensive. It's a great price value, and it's a delicious piece of meat. Check out mycleanbeef.com slash after hours. That's mycleanbeef.com slash after hours. Mycleanbeef.com slash after hours.